Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12? We're going to be looking at just the first three verses of this chapter, but they are powerful. They are some of my uh, favorite verses in Scripture as we take a look at running this race before us, looking to Jesus. Uh, If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, there are some under the seats where you are sitting. You could use those, but let me read this for us as we begin. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great passage of Scripture. Thank you for the examples of those who have gone before us in the faith that we have read about in chapter 11. And as we look at this passage today that teaches us how to run this race well, I pray that our hearts would be open to whatever it is that we need to hear this morning, that your Holy Spirit would just bookmark that in our life, and we'd come back and we'd spend some time with you today as we think about it. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Christian life is like a race. It is not a sprint, it is a long-distance race, more like a marathon. And the Apostle Paul used this metaphor frequently to encourage the believers to run that race and also as he talked about his own life. For example, in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, he urged the Corinthians to run this race in such a way as to get the prize. Run to win. Now, if you think about Corinth and the time that Paul was writing, I mean, they knew what a marathon was. Uh, The city of Marathon was just 73 miles from Corinth. That first marathon historically that started all of this was in 490 B.C. when a soldier ran from battle with the news of victory from Marathon to Athens, Greece, the 26.2 miles. In Galatians 2.2, Paul shared a time when he checked himself. He had heard and learned the gospel, but he was still young in the Lord. He was an apostle commissioned to go to the Gentiles, and he wanted to make sure that the gospel he was preaching was the same as the other apostles. So he went down to Jerusalem for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. I mean, he wanted to make sure that he was on the right track, that we are in agreement with this. And so here he is checking his own message with them. In Acts 20, 24, he said to the elders at Ephesus that I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That's my calling That's the race that he has set out for me, and I want to run this well. And near the end of his life, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he would write this, that I have fought the good fight. 
I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. And he was looking forward to that prize in heaven, the crown of righteousness that would be awarded to him on that great day. So it is not surprising that we would also find this same metaphor used by other writers in Scripture, like the author of Hebrews. There is a lot that we can learn from sports and especially from running about perseverance, about self-discipline, about endurance, about patience, about running toward the finish line, running to win the prize. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. How are we to run this race well? Well, the first thing we're going to see in the text is that it requires preparation. The writer of Hebrews pictures us as running this race in a great stadium or amphitheater like they had at that time, surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. It's like people are filling the bleachers in the stadium and they're cheering you on. I mean, imagine what it would be like to run a race in the new Viking Stadium when that's completed and it's packed with 70,000 fans and they're, they're cheering you on in excitement. That would be a pretty thrilling feeling. I think back to the Promise Keepers uh, rallies and gatherings that took place down at the Metrodome. And it's hard for me to believe it's actually been 20 years since this one event happened. But one of the things that they did when this stadium was filled with men there was they invited the pastors in that group to come down onto the field. And as we came down out of the stands, they were cheering for us. And I remember standing on that field, and I mean, it was thunderous. It's one of those times when you could feel sound as all of these men in the stands were cheering for their pastors. And then they prayed for us and asked for God's blessing on our work. It was a memory I will not forget. And the writer of Scripture here tells us that we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, and these witnesses are those who have gone before us. They're the ones mentioned in chapter 11, these great heroes of the faith, but they are also those who have died in the Lord and gone before us that we have known. And they are there, and they are cheering us on toward that finish line. They are not merely spectators watching an event. They are people who have run this race and run it well by faith and are saying, you can do this too. The word for witness that's used here is the word martyr. And a martyr is a witness. That's all it means. It's a witness. It was much later, and I'm not sure of the exact time when that meaning changed, where a martyr became a witness who had sealed his testimony by his blood. But in the New Testament, all believers are martyrs. We are all witnesses to the grace and truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the same way that we are all saints. And it was later again that the term saint kind of was changed and canonized and made to be somebody who was super spiritual or some miracle had been performed or associated with them or things like that. But in the New Testament, everyone who has placed their faith in Christ is a saint because we have been set apart for him. And so we are all called, if you will, to be martyrs, to be witnesses by our life and by our death. 
One of the things that you notice about running a marathon, when you think of this and how it applies to the Christian life, is that you can't just show up and run a marathon. It requires some preparation, some training. You don't just wake up in the morning and say, I think I'll run 26 miles today, you know, and go out and do that well. I mean, you'll die along the way. And I I wanted to ask this morning, I know some of you have run a marathon. How many of you have done that, have run a marathon? Okay, you know, there's several here. There were more in the first service, too, that had. Let me just ask you if you can shout it out. How long did it take you to train to run that marathon? Four months. Four months, okay. Others? Two years, yeah, I know, and it, and it can range. I mean, if you, if you Google that, and I did that, you know how long should you train, you can see these, um, you know, kind of roadmaps of what you need to do for 12 to 20 weeks if you're already a runner, but if you're not a runner, you know, and you're going to do this, you got to get in shape first. And it's interesting that in this same kind of example here, if we are going to run the race of faith and do that well, There are things we need to do to prepare also. And one of the things he mentions is we need to throw off everything that hinders. And he's talking about excess weight. I mean, you can be overweight and run a marathon, but you'll do a lot better if you're not carrying an extra 20 or 30 pounds with you for 26 miles, you know. I mean, the first thing you might want to do is to just train and get in shape and lose some pounds. And it's interesting here how, you know, the author of Scripture calls attention to that as well for us as Christians. The most famous marathon in the United States is the Boston Marathon, and it was run just last Monday. And um, here's a picture of the two people that won that race. They're both from Ethiopia. I have a harder time pronouncing their names. The man's name was Lemmy Berhanu Hale, I think. He ran that race in two hours, 12 minutes, and 45 seconds. It was interesting, the article said that was a modest time for running a marathon. A modest time. That's not the best, that's a modest time, but that's a five-minute mile for 26 miles. That's pretty amazing. And the woman, Atseda Besa, ran it in two hours, 29 minutes, and 18 seconds. Now, if you look at them, one thing you notice is they're not carrying too much excess weight, are they? (laughs) You know, there's kind of a prototypical marathon runner if you're going to do well. They're long and lean, they're muscular, but they are slender. And they have trained their body to run this race over a long distance. For the Christian, there are things that can weigh us down that are not sinful in themselves. And the scripture here makes a distinction between those things that can hinder us that are not sinful, but still we need to evaluate in our life, and the sin that so easily entangles us. And so we're going to look at both. What are those things that can hinder us that are not necessarily sinful in themselves? Well, one of those things can be our possessions, our stuff. I mean, everything that we own, we have to maintain or take care of. Our homes, our toys, our recreational vehicles, our cabins, whatever it may be. And they can be a great blessing that are used for God, that are good for our family, that are good for our friends or people that we know. And we can use those in a way that honors God. Or they can be things that just consume our time, 
and our money and our energy. And they take us away and they, they keep us from running that race well. It might be in the area of hobbies or leisure, sports, television, recreation. I mean, we need some of that in our life. We need those things that renew us, refresh us. We, um, God has given us all good gifts to enjoy in this world and to delight in him and give him thanks for that. But sometimes they can take over and they get out of balance. And we have to weigh that out. I mean, you know, I think about if you love to golf, I, golf is great. But if your tea time is 8 o'clock every Sunday morning and you're not going to make it to church on Sundays, there's a conflict there. I think of Howard Hendricks, who many years ago, when I was a young Christian, talked about this in his own life. He loved to golf. But he said, you know, I basically had one day off a week, and if I went out and I golfed for 18 holes, it would take me four hours, maybe a little bit more if I stopped for lunch. And he was evaluating where he was in his life and the age of his children. He said, you know, that was too much time to take away from my kids. And so one day he came home and he just threw the golf clubs out. And he chose instead to do something that would allow him to do recreation with his wife and his kids. And he changed. It wasn't that that was sinful. It's not wrong but it was something that he needed to evaluate. And you know, I, I can't tell you what that is for you. I can't tell you what you need to cut out, if anything. I mean, for me to do that would be legalism. But I can ask you to do this. To come before the Lord and ask him the question, Lord, are there things in my life that are hindering or keeping me from growing and serving you as I should. Are there things in your life that aren't necessarily sinful, but they're kind of time wasters or they're money wasters and there's some better way that you could use your time? On the other side, he said, we also need to throw off the sin that so easily entangles us. This is called a besetting sin. And each of us have those areas where we struggle. And some of those are common to man and some of those are maybe unique to you, but there's an area in your life where if I ask you, you know, you know, I just struggle in this area. For some people, it's the love of money. It is coveting. It is greed. It's wanting more stuff or more things. The Apostle Paul admitted that coveting was the area where Satan was just hammering him and he had to bring that to the Lord. For some people, it's the love of the world. It's pleasure or fame or the things that the world offers. And I think of Demas in Scripture who had said, left his ministry with the Apostle Paul because he loved this present world. And he abandoned the faith. He walked away from it because of the attraction of this world. It might be addictions like alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling. And I know that it is common today to talk about addictions as a disease and not a moral issue, but it is both a spiritual and a physical issue. You see, often those addictions start when we are trying to fill a void in our life or we're trying to cover up or deal with some pain or some need that we have in our life. And often they start that way and so we're trying to self-medicate 
and then it physically becomes an addiction. It changes the way our brain is wired or the way that we think about things. And so there are both aspects that need to be dealt with when a person is set free from those addictions. Might be anger, might be lust, might be pride, gossip, lying, self-centeredness. All of those things, you know, really it's about me, it's about my needs, it's focused on self. Two weeks ago, Time Magazine on their cover story had an article on pornography in the United States. And it was from a purely secular point of view, but it was interesting what they were saying. In this article, they were talking about how devastating this has been not for moral reasons, but for physical reasons. What it was doing to particularly young men who have grown up in this age where it is so prevalent on the internet and easy to find, and it is also affecting young women in our world who are getting sucked into that too. But the result of it, what they were saying in that article, was we now have men in their 20s and 30s who are impotent because they can't get aroused in a normal way in a relationship with a woman, they are so addicted to online pornography. And they were the ones saying, this has got to stop. We have got to get rid of this in our country. We have known for years how demeaning it is to women to view them as a sexual object. And we see the devastation. And when I hear these kind of reports, it just to me goes back to the book of Galatians where God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. You sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. It comes back. But if you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap eternal life. So here's my question for you. What is the sin that you struggle with the most? What is your besetting sin? And have you ever told anyone about it? Have you ever admitted that to somebody else and just said, this is what I wrestle with. Would you pray for me? Have you asked for prayer and accountability? You know, yesterday I went to my wife Gail and I said, you know, I'm going to be asking this question tomorrow and I better be willing to answer that. And so I... I went to my wife and I said, you know, the thing that I have been struggling with recently that it's not, it's not usual for me, but I have been feeling is I am struggling with anger. I have a situation in my life that has affected me that is just feels like an injustice. And every time I think about it, it makes me mad. And I have tried to resolve it. I've tried to work. But I just have to keep giving it to the Lord and put it in His hands. I know what I need to do. I know the Scripture that helps me on that. But every time it comes up, i got to bring it back to Him. And you can pray for me in that regard. And you could pray for resolution. But I mean, all of us have areas in our life where Satan wants to come, wants to hammer, and wants to defeat you. In order to run that race well, we need to deal with both, setting aside those things that hinder and the sin that so easily entangles us. Secondly, we need to run with perseverance. And we see that in the second half of verse 1. To run with perseverance means we are going to run with determination. 
I am going to run this race to the end. I am going to follow Christ. We need to run with courage. We need to run with discipline, being people that are in the Word, in prayer, worshiping, fellowshipping together. We need to run with endurance. Whatever trials may come, whatever Satan may throw at us, we are going to persevere and follow Christ. That's what it takes. It's like running a marathon. Running a marathon is not easy. Dick Beardsley, who was from Schaefer, Minnesota, ran one of the most famous marathons in Boston history. It was in 1982. I want you to look at this picture. Dick Beardsley is on the left. He's the one with the cap on. And Alberto Salazar is the one in front who finished the race just that distance between them. For 26.2 miles, these guys ran stride for stride. There's a book written about it called The Duel in the Sun. And there were five guys who started out together that were like the elite marathon runners, you know, and then it came down to two. And Dick was leading the race for most of the race. I mean, he's just a, a young guy, grew up, like I said, nearby here in our community. And um, he... He ran as hard as he could, and when he got to that last mile, his legs started to cramp, and he was just fighting through it, but it slowed him down just enough that Alberto Salazar got ahead of him and finished the race just a couple strides ahead. Both ran the race in two hours and eight minutes. They both would have won this year. It was the fastest time that either of them would ever run a marathon. They both pushed each other. I mean, Dick's going, I just ran a 208 and I lost. I mean, how do, you, how, do you, how do you do that when it was a record time? I mean, he was feeling that it was hard. And these guys just fought to the finish. And Dick said this about running a marathon. He said, it is common for runners and athletes in any endurance sport to hit the wall as they push themselves past their comfort level. And he said, when I ran that race, it felt like an elephant had jumped out of a tree onto my shoulders and was making me carry it the rest of the way in. How's that for a word picture? You know, just, oh, man, you're hitting the wall, and you got to fight it. Hitting the wall is a very real physical condition. Once carbohydrates and hydration are diminished, the body wants to stop. The body burns out of energy and becomes so tired it can't go forward. The day before the Boston Marathon, an article in Harvard Health predicted what would happen to the thousands of runners. Come tomorrow morning, about 27,000 runners will begin this annual 26-mile, 385-yard mass run from suburban Hopkinton to Boston. But if past marathons in Boston and elsewhere are any indication, perhaps up to 40% of these optimistic and determined souls will slam into a sudden sensation of overwhelming, can't-do-this fatigue several miles before they get a chance to experience the glory of crossing the finish line, usually about five miles before it hits. Well, what is true for the body is also true for the soul. That spiritually speaking, sometimes we also hit the wall. And we feel like an elephant has jumped on our back. And we feel that, can't do this. I don't know if I can take another step. I don't know if I can 
finish this race and do this well. And what the writer of Scripture encourages us to do is to run this race with perseverance, with determination, with strength. And we are to run the race that is marked out for us. Did you catch that? It's marked out for us. In other words, it is different for each of us by God's design. And I can't answer why God has brought into your life the certain circumstances that he has that are unique to you. Or why he's brought into my life the things that he has. God is the one who marks the course, but what he asks each of us to do is to run that race well. And I know that there are times when you feel like you just hit the wall. And you're going, I don't know if I can deal with this. I am struggling. Would you pray for me? Some struggle with being single when they would like to be married. Some couples struggle with infertility when they want to have a family. Some struggle with health issues in their life, whether it is heart disease or cancer or a disability, and they would love to be whole. Some struggle with financial issues. For some, it's their work and the responsibility that they carry or the way things have gone in their life. Some struggle with their family, with family dynamics or with their kids or spouse and they're wrestling with those kind of things. Each of us have a different race, but we are to run that race by the strength that God gives. I can't run your race and you can't run mine. In fact, there are some days when I wonder if I can run mine too and run it well. And I need to go to Philippians 4.13 that says that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the power source. That's the one that we rely on and trust to give us that strength to persevere. So my question for you is, how will we use what we have been given for God's glory? Because God can even use the circumstances of your life to minister to somebody else. And God can take what was painful for you or a trial for you, and he can use that to be an encouragement to someone else to persevere in their race as well. And thirdly, we need to run with perspective. And we see that in verses 2 and 3. So much of our attitude toward life is based on our perspective. Do we look at what we have and give thanks? Or do we look at what we don't have and feel cheated or disappointed? What's your bent? Which is the way that you look most often? Do you look at your life and are you grateful for what you have and what God has done and you give him thanks? Or do you look at your life and feel like, boy, that was a disappointment or that didn't go the way I planned or that didn't? And you feel cheated. You're disappointed. You're angry at God or angry at someone else. Remember that the writer of Scripture here is writing to believers who had been publicly exposed to insults and persecution. They had seen their friends, fellow believers, arrested and thrown in prison. They had even had their own property, their homes, unlawfully confiscated and yet could rejoice because they knew that they had better and lasting possessions. That's in Hebrews 10, 
32 to 34. So now he urges us to run this race, fixing our eyes on Jesus. He's the author and he's the perfecter of our faith. And we've we've come to those words before in Hebrews. When it says he's the author of our faith, he's the trailblazer. He's the one who's gone before us. He's the one who's opened the door to heaven for us to follow. He's the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who is refining us and making us holy. And he's the one who's going to bring us safely home. He's the pace setter in the race. He's the one who's running with us and says, follow me. Keep your eyes on me. And he will give us the strength to run this race to the end. And the scripture here urges us to consider how he ran his race and follow his example. Look at verse 3 when he said, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Think about the opposition Jesus faced. It was much worse than ours. Think about his suffering on the cross and not just the physical suffering which was great but his spiritual suffering as he took our sin upon himself and he bore the wrath of God for our sins. The text says that he endured the cross. He scorned the humiliation and shame of being hung on a cross, naked, taunted, jeered, mocked, made fun of, and he did it all for us. Why? How could he do that? He did it because of the joy set before him. He looked to the prize, the joy of heaven. He looked to that day when he would be reunited with his father, when he would take his rightful place at the father's right hand. He looked to the day and the joy of bringing all who would follow him, all who would place their faith in him to eternity to experience his joy forever. Look to Jesus so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's interesting that those two words, it's just two words in Greek for grow weary and lose heart, that those words were actually used by secular writers at that time to describe what happened to a marathon runner who dropped out of the race, who hit that wall, who grow so weary and fatigued that they quit the race, and he is saying, don't let that happen to you. Don't quit. Follow Christ. Don't give up. Run to the end. Well, in this year's Boston Marathon, one of the dramatic stories that came out of it was the story of a young woman, Adrienne Hazlitt. Three years ago, she lost her left leg in the terrorist bombing that took place at the end of the race. Here's a picture of her. A young woman... 35 years old. She was a professional dancer and she lost her left leg. She had two goals that she set coming out of that time. One, she wanted to be able to dance again and two, she wanted to run the Boston Marathon again. It would take her 10 and a half hours to finish that race, but she did it. In an article in the Associated Press, They wrote this about her, that it was 26.2 miles of agonizing ecstasy for Hazlitt of Boston, whose prosthesis dug painfully into her stump. 
It began swelling and blistering around mile seven when she was accidentally doused with a glass of water at one of the water stations along the way, and it got into where her prosthesis was. By mile 14, she had to spend an hour in a medical tent, and she wondered how she'd ever make it to Boylston Street. She said it was unbearably painful. There were times when she had to stop, times when she crumbled to the ground, and each time she'd say, my God, I'm not going to make it. I'm going to have to pull out of this race. But people were there to support her, encourage her, help her, and in the end, her own steely determination and the cheers, real and virtual, of people who lined the route and on social media powered her to the same finish line where a bomb had left her shredded and bleeding three years earlier. It's that great cloud of witnesses that were cheering her on. And she said, as she thought about that race, she said, people came out of their houses to cheer. There were people who were leaning out of their four-story windows that were looking down and were cheering her on and giving her that strength and that energy to continue her race. She would say that when she got to the finish line, and her medal was hanging around her neck, she posted a photo of herself opening a bottle of champagne with the caption, I have no words filled to the brim with the utter definition of joy. Of joy. Why did she run this race? Why did she persevere through the pain? It was because of the joy set before her. And she would say in the last note in this article that pain is temporary but the metal lasts forever. And isn't that what the Apostle Paul says when he talks about runners who run this race in this life? That they do it to receive a prize that will not last forever. But the prize we run for in heaven will be for all of eternity. I just think that's a perfect illustration of what this passage is all about. That we are to run the race that is marked out for us. We're to run through the pain. We are to listen to the crowd of witnesses that are cheering us on, our brothers and sisters in Christ and the church and those who have gone before us. We're to keep our eyes on the goal. We're to run with our eye on the prize and the joy that is set before us that that day will bring. And if you will run like that, in that day there will be no regrets. There will only be overwhelming joy. So where are you at in your race? Are you just starting out or are you nearing the finish? Are you five miles in? Are you hitting the wall and you feel like, boy, I don't know if I can take another step. We need one another to do this. Run hard for the glory of God. Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And I, I just encourage you, maybe it's later today, maybe it's this week, come back to that passage and ask the Holy Spirit to make that clear to you what that is. And run with perseverance. Run with joy. Run with your eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you know our heart. You have called us to give you our best, and we want to do that. And we thank you for the examples in Scripture of those who have gone before us. We thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ who 
who are here to help us and cheer us on. And God, I pray that whatever there is that is hindering us or tripping us up or keeping from running well, that we would give that to you. That we tell somebody else so they could pray for us, encourage us, hold us accountable, and that we would run with our eyes fixed on Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.